A new generation of Democrats. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the conversation. I'm David Schuster. There are some fascinating congressional races ahead, and one of them features perhaps uh, the new generation of Democrats. His name is Maxwell Alejandro Frost. He is a progressive Democratic candidate for Florida's 10th congressional district. This is the seat that has been held by Val Demings. She is uh, not running again because she's going to run against Marco Rubio for Senate. And uh, Maxwell Alejandro Frost joins us now on the conversation. Now, good of you to be here. Uh, just so I'm clear, you're you're 24 years old. Yep, I'm 24 years old. Okay, so why now? Why the rush to get involved in a congressional race? Well, thanks for the question, David. Look, I've been involved in organizing and politics since I was 15 years old. Uh, what got me involved was the Sandy Hook shooting, and ever since then, I've been you know in rooms lobbying with legislators um, on the streets, protesting for uh, safer gun laws, for racial justice, and really have been on the forefront of a lot of different fights here in the South. And what I've noticed is that we just need better leaders, right? We need folks who understand that we as the people deserve more than we've been getting. And so I'm tired of lobbying and talking with legislators who really don't care about what I have to say. Um, and so I decided now's the time to, to step up. And I had a bunch of leaders and organizers actually approach me earlier this year. They told me, Max, you need to run for Congress. The first thing I said was, no, 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 heck no, right? <laughs> and uh, But I kept thinking about it. I had tons of conversations with people across the district and came to the conclusion that people want bold progressive leadership right here in Central Florida. And that's you've why I'm running for Congress. You've, you've been a national organizer for the ACLU, ACLU, but what was it about those conversations? What was the aha moment that convinced you that you should be the one, the candidate to try to bring about this change? You know, the interesting thing is it's actually the most personal conversation I had. I spoke with about 200 people and at the end of it, I was still at a crossroads. I'm adopted, I got adopted at birth. And um, I didn't know anything about my biological family. And then something told me, find out about that story. And so I sat down with my parents, they told me the story. And what I found out was a story that is actually not unique at all, but also very sad. I'm one of eight many siblings. Uh, my biological mother had me at the most vulnerable point in her life. And literally when I was born, I was shaking and my parents took me back to the hospital. They ran some tests and found out that I was suffering from withdrawals of crack cocaine as an infant. And a lot of my friends were like, Max, are you mad at your biological mom? You, you mad at her? And I wasn't really mad, I was just sad. Um, as an organizer, something I always tell folks is we need to see the world through the eyes of the most vulnerable and use that vision and demand that our leaders use that vision for every decision they make. So finding out that my the literal inception of, of me, right? Me being born came from someone's most vulnerable point connected everything for me. And that's what pushed me to run for Congress. It does seem that in um, this congressional district, the Florida 10th congressional district, as you were just pointing out a minute ago off camera, I mean, it's a plus Democrat 24 district. So it's really the primary that's gonna determine who's gonna win because the general election should be a slam dunk. Uh, you are right now the most progressive candidate in the race. What was it that convinced you to become a progressive over the last 10 years or so? A lot of different things. I think it's seeing a lot of the struggles, right? Um, and seeing folks fighting for more. People saying, people daring to say there's a better world and we deserve it. Why? By virtue of being born, by virtue of being a human being, we deserve healthcare. By virtue of you being a human being, we deserve clean water, access to food, we deserve a roof over our head. And it's that sort of that audacity of that kind of what we deserve that really pushed me to be a part of this. You know, When I first started off in politics as a kid, I really thought it was as simple as red versus blue and that's it, right? 
And as you get into this work, you find out that there's so much more to this. Um, and there's folks that are quite frankly suffering who have never gotten the help that they need. And little by little, these movements, whether or not it's the campaign of you know Senator Bernie Sanders, who I worked for um, both cycles, or someone like AOC being elected, or um, something like March for Our Lives happening, seeing tons of young students standing up saying, we've had enough of gun violence. All these things have come together um, to make me the person I am today. And that's why I'm a proud progressive. Um, and for me, progressive just means we understand what we deserve. We understand that this country can do better. And we dare to not just ask for it, but demand it for demand it for the people. And now we're running for office to get it ourselves. The rap against sometimes against activists, against organizers, particularly younger ones, is that uh, there's such great idealism, but there's a lack of understanding about the pragmatic nature of politics. And you mentioned gun violence. I mean, there are a lot of Democrats who have felt very strongly about more gun restrictions and some ways of trying to get you know a proposal that literally has 70% of the nation's support behind it through Congress, but they've been unable to do it. How would you do it any differently? Definitely. Well, first off, we have to keep pushing, right? We only fail when we stop fighting for what we believe in. And I get this all the time. People say, Max, you have great ideas. These are great ideas. You're, you know, coming in, you want to see this change, but it's a difficult system and it moves slowly. And I know that, right? I worked at the American Civil Liberties Union as a national organizer, working with legislators to fight for civil rights. When I worked at March for Our Lives as the national organizing director, I was one of the folks in the room and we were pushing President Biden to add $5 billion and build back better for community violence intervention. That was progressive activists who pushed for that. And I was a part of that fight. I understand things take time, but the difference the difference between progressives and other folks is we don't allow our understanding of the system change who we are, what we believe in and how hard we're gonna fight for it. And so for me as a member coming to Congress, I know I'm not gonna be able to snap my fingers and we get Medicare for all, but this is about culture change. This is about adding more, not just allies, but accomplices to the struggle in a place where they can make the difference. And I'm one of those people who's fighting to be a part of that tradition of excellence in Congress. Some of the changes that progressives were suggesting in the last you know, several months was that they wanted to tie, they wanted to link in the, um, the infrastructure bill with the Build Back Better bill. And they were convinced by Nancy Pelosi and others, no, go ahead and separate them. It's okay, pass infrastructure. I, I promise you we'll get you the votes to pass Build Back Better. Well, that was wrong. It turns out the progressives were right. AOC was correct to try to demand that linkage in the beginning because it doesn't look like Build Back Better is, is getting through. Would you stand with the uh, AOC, Ilhan Omar, uh, and the rest of the the squad, I suppose, if you call them that, uh, on that kind of strategy. I'm about fighting for for everyday poor and working class people. So for me, I'm going to stand with whoever is holding the line for the most vulnerable of our district. So when it comes to this specific situation, yes, right, I do believe we needed to hold the line to ensure that we could deliver Build Back Better, which would have been the most progressive legislation and progressive thing we've seen through this government in modern history. Um, and so I would have held the line with them and, and, and stood strong on that. And I'm here to hold the line with anyone in Congress who is fighting the real fight for people, because the fact of the matter is most of the folks in my district cannot afford an unexpected $300 bill tomorrow. That has to be at the forefront of everything we're thinking about, whether it's climate justice, reimagining public safety, ending gun violence. We have to figure how are we going to make people's lives better so they can live their best dreams and just you know, live, live their best lives. And so that's what this campaign's about. If you are successful in this campaign, you would be the first member of Generation Z to be elected to Congress. You'd be the third Afro-Latino elected. How much of that sort of interesting background that you have shapes what you bring to Congress? Or do you think we are spending too much time on identity politics? 
It's interesting because I've gone through a, a many different phases in thinking about identity politics. I hated it at one point. I loved it at the other point. And the what I do is I think about identity politics in the way we're supposed to think about it, right? Identity politics and identity really is just how the world sees me and how I see the world. That's very important when we're talking about progressive policies, how we're gonna see the world through the eyes of the most vulnerable. We have to understand that having a disability, being black, being someone who is not making what they deserve, someone who's working at a place without a union, all these things add up to who we are in our identity. So in the traditional sense, right, we have a perverted version of identity politics, which is like, oh, you're black, I'm black, let me vote for you. I'm not for that, right? We need people who are gonna be the best on policy for people. But it is an important part of the story that I am gonna be the first member of Gen Z in Congress. I'm not running to, you know, to hit a world world record or anything. I'm running for the people in my district, but it's part of the story because the fact is there's we don't have any young folks in Congress really. And it's time that we have a diversity of not just opinion, but in a diversity of age, a diversity of experience. And that's gonna be important in creating a new version of government that works for everybody, not just those at the top. The primary in your district is August, so as you mentioned, you have a you have a little while. What do you see as the the biggest challenge over the next eight months in terms of how do you cross the finish line successfully in that district? Is there something unique about Orlando that the rest of us may not appreciate? I think a lot of times folks think about Florida and they think it's completely Republican, right? That we have to just give up, and I completely push back on that. As someone who was born and raised here in Orlando, some of the most progressive movements in this country's history have come from right here in Florida, and specifically from young people. Whether it's March for Our Lives that came from Parkland, or Dream Defenders that came up after the murder of Brother Trayvon Martin, just about an hour north of me, right here in Orlando. There are things we need to do, and I think the fact that if we look at the margins of races, statewide races here in Florida, they're always very close. And the reason why is because there's millions of poor and working class people just crying out for relief, crying out for help, and they need folks who are gonna be champions for them in office. And that's why I'm so excited about this race, because we're not just electing right the first member of Gen Z to Congress anywhere, it's in Florida, a place that a lot of folks have given up on. And I haven't given up on it because we can't, right? We This is how we build power. If we look at the legacy of the South, I'm not talking about the Confederacy or anything like that, but the black folks, poor and working class folks who came up in the South, who fought for rights, who fought for unionization, who fought for a better, um, who fought for a better land, better world. Um, that legacy is strong, and, and I walk in the path of my ancestors. And so we're really excited about this race. We're, we're going to win it because we're going to outraise everybody. We're going to organize everyone. We're going to knock every damn door. We're going to call every person, and we're going to spread this message of progressive policies. Not just talk about them, but bring it home for people. Talk about how things like Medicare for all, how things like a Green New Deal are going to impact their day-to-day life. Max, where did you go to college, and what was your major, and what was your takeaway from the college experience? Yeah, um, Valencia College and University of Central Florida um, here in Orlando, political science. Um, and you know, the interesting thing is I'm also still taking classes as well. I always believe a learning is gonna be something, a lifelong thing and really excited to always be a student. Um, and yeah, political science for me, Most of my learning, especially as an 18 year old going up to now to 24 has been on campaigns. I've been working professionally in campaigns since I got it right out of high school. And so a lot of my learning has actually been practical learning, being on the ground, working on amendment for the ballot referendum to get people with previous felonies the right to vote, um, being on the road with people who were previously incarcerated. These are the experiences that have pushed me um, to be the person I am today. And Max, real quickly, what does your family think about this effort? 
They're really excited about it. My mom came here from Cuba during the freedom flights in the 60s. Um, my father's a musician here, my mom's an ESE teacher, and they're excited to see someone who obviously they believe in because I'm their son. Uh, <laughs> but you know, they're, exci- they're excited to see me in this and they are standing beside me. They're gonna be making calls. Um, they're excited to see us win this race. Well, we are very excited to see how you do and how this campaign unfolds. Maxwell Alejandro Frost, he is uh, running for Congress uh, in Florida's 10th congressional district. He's the most progressive candidate in the race. And again, the primary in August will determine who wins this because it is a heavily democratic district. Max, good luck to you and thanks for joining us. Thank you so much. And if folks wanna help us out, they can go to frostforcongress.com. Thank you so much. You got it. What is Russia thinking about with Ukraine? Hello everybody, welcome back to the conversation. I'm David Schuster. So Russian troops continue to mass along the Ukraine border. And this comes after the conversation between President Joe Biden and Russia's Vladimir Putin. Here to talk about this is David Tafuri. He was a, a former Obama campaign foreign policy advisor. He also worked at the State Department. David, good of you to join us. So what do you make of what Vladimir Putin is up to? Well, Putin gave a long, press conference today from Moscow, it was about four hours. And a lot of the discussion was about Ukraine and what he's doing with respect to Ukraine's eastern border and his complaints about the US and about NATO. It's very clear that he's making it look like he might do a full-scale invasion of Ukraine. It's not entirely clear if he really means to do that or he's just using that threat in order to coerce some compromises from the US and from NATO. He has over 100,000 troops on the border with Eastern Ukraine, but he's had troops and influence in Eastern Ukraine for a long time now, since 2014. So it's already a low grade war. The question is in 2022, is it gonna become a high grade war with a lot of violence, with more Russian troops in Ukraine and with his uh, intention to be to occupy Ukraine. It's not entirely clear and it depends a lot on what the US and NATO response will be. One of the responses so far has been Joe Biden saying the United States is not gonna make any sort of clear commitment on behalf of NATO not to expand into the East, which is what uh, Vladimir Putin wants. He wants NATO to flat out say, look, you're not gonna expand, you're not gonna include Ukraine as part of the NATO membership. Um, With the Biden administration saying, no, we can't go there. um, What is Putin's next move? I mean, is it just sort of continuing to add troops as he's been doing? Does this increase the chances for war? Well, I think that Biden made the right decision to make it very clear that we are not going to be blackmailed into taking a policy position that is not our policy position, isn't really not in the interests of NATO to make a commitment like that to Russia, especially under the gun. Uh, it, I don't know what Russia will do next. Uh, you know, Putin talked a lot today about how he wants commitments like that from the US, he's also very worried about the US putting more military installations near the border with Russia as it has uh, you know, some operations and, and, and NATO led operations in Romania and Poland. And he wants that not to be in Ukraine, but it's also notable that the US has provided about two and a half billion dollars in defensive military aid to Ukraine since 2014. And Biden and the Secretary of Defense have made clear that is going to continue and in fact, it's going to ramp up, especially if it if Russia does take more provocative measures towards Ukraine. So all of this is a mystery as to what's going to happen. It depends a lot on ongoing discussions between the U.S. and Russia. And the U.S. and U.S. officials made clear today that they want to continue those discussions. But it's not clear what they're willing to give 
Putin and whether it goes far enough to cause him to reduce the troop presence he has on the border of Ukraine right now. Let's suppose, if just for argument's sake, and again, no guarantee this would happen, but let's just suppose that Vladimir Putin is tired of the discussions, decides that they're not going anywhere, and go ahead and just decide to go ahead and put several thousand troops into Ukraine, maybe all 100,000, maybe full scale invasion. What should the US plan be at that point? Well, First of all, that is a serious provocation toward the US and towards NATO, and most importantly to, to international law and to the UN. Uh, you know, Ukraine is a sovereign country, and all of the world should be defending Ukraine's sovereignty. And notably, President Biden and the Secretary of Defense have said that they will help Ukraine defend its sovereignty. But President Biden has also said that he's not going to put US troops in Ukraine. So it's not entirely clear how far we will go. Certainly, we're going to have to step up our military support for Ukraine. And certainly, we're going to have to step up sanctions. And we're going to have to do everything we can in partnership with our European partners to try to coerce Russia and Putin to back off. But it is a really a high stakes game. And for all of the fears, therefore, that a lot of Americans have about the United States being drawn into a direct combat war with the Russians, it sounds like you're saying, well, even if Russia does go ahead and take that step of invading Ukraine, and of course, they've already taken Crimea, they've already had the border skirmishes in eastern Ukraine, that the United States would likely just provide more military weapons and equipment to the Ukrainian soldiers that are fighting, and of course, ratchet up some incredible sanctions. I think that's probably right. Uh, you know, I'm not sure President Biden should have said he won't put U.S. troops in Ukraine, uh, even if that is the U.S. policy, and that might be a good U.S. policy, and probably reflects what the American people want. But we didn't necessarily need to tell Russia that in advance. But he said that, so I imagine he's going to stick to that. He's not going to put U.S. troops in harm's way, but I expect the Biden administration will do everything else they can short of putting US troops there, which includes stepping up military support and sanctions and cooperative measures and efforts through the UN, although those would likely be stymied by Russia since it's a member of the Security Council and can veto anything in the UN. But we would do all of those things and others, especially putting financial pressure on Russia to back off. And, uh, and, 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 but we don't know what will happen, whether that's going to work. Uh, you know, Putin, he's a tough customer. Uh, he comes from a KGB background. He understands the intelligence measures. He understands how to undermine a country like Ukraine and undermine its democracy, which he's been doing for many years. And he seems intent upon continuing to do that. He also seems to have a history of sometimes rattling cages or messing with Ukraine at a time when he's facing some domestic pressures or domestic challenges. Do you see anything happening in Russia right now domestically for Vladimir Putin that would encourage him to try to draw everybody's attention away from what's happening in Moscow and put the attention on Ukraine? Sure, the economy is not doing well in Russia. It's been hit hard also by COVID. and. Um, so he likes to distract his his population, as you mentioned, from the internal problems inside Russia uh, by saber rattling and by uh, focusing people on the ways in which he is promoting Russia's prominence abroad and R- Russian influence in other countries. And so I think that's part of what why he does this. But the main reason Putin does this let's be honest, is because 
Putin cares only about staying in power. So everything is about how does he stay in power? He surrounds himself with oligarchs who are loyal to him. He ensures that they get the proceeds of the Russian largesse. And that's why they're billionaires. And they continue to be billionaires as long as they're loyal to him and they support him and they do his dirty work. And so he runs a giant kleptocracy and he wants to extend that kleptocracy to other countries around Russia, like Ukraine. And the reason he wants to do it is for self-preservation. He wants to be a forever dictator. He wants to remain the head of the Russian government, the head of the Russian state until the end of his life. Are there any natural resources or things in Ukraine that Russia doesn't already have access to that might help him with that kleptocracy, with that uh, uh, oligarchy that he continues to build? Sure. I mean, he doesn't have the same level of influence in Ukraine that he had before the revolution in Ukraine in 2014. Um, you know, he previously had Yanukovych as the leader of Ukraine, who was who became basically a puppet of Putin and Russia, and who was pushed out for that reason. Uh, Ukraine is very nationalist. Um, most Ukrainians are very proud to be an independent, sovereign country. They resent uh, what Russia has been doing since 2014. So he doesn't have the level of control that he would like, but he certainly has some oligarchs in Ukraine who he is allied with, who do business with Russia, who have some influence in Ukraine. And he would like to extend that and get more control over both the industry in Ukraine and over the government in Ukraine. He's not been successful lately, but part of the pressure he's putting on Ukraine with the military buildup on the border of Ukraine is to try to accomplish that. And how much of this is uh, to try to accomplish testing Joe Biden? I mean, President Biden's still relatively new in terms of his administration. I know that Biden and Putin have met before, and obviously with Biden being vice president for Barack Obama, Biden has a lot of familiarity with the US-Russian relationship. But uh, how much of this do you think really is Putin just trying to sort of prod and sort of see how far he can, he can push the Biden administration? I think that's a big part of it as well. Uh, he, you know, there's a chess match here and he wants to try to push uh, President Biden to concede on certain aspects of, of U.S. goals in Eastern Europe. Um, he resents, uh, you know, Biden's support for democracies, especially democracies in Eastern Europe and among former Soviet states. So he's testing uh, how far he can go and whether he can uh, elicit concessions from President Biden by doing things like building up troops on the border with Eastern Ukraine and by messing with other democracies in Eastern Europe. We mentioned, David, that you spent a lot of time, of course, advising the Obama campaign, serving as a foreign policy advisor. You've worked at the State Department. What do you make of the foreign policy team that Joe Biden has assembled? I think they're doing a very good job. I think he has an excellent team around him. I think we're in a you know very tough time for foreign policy. Uh, we've, we have pulled back a lot of our troops from places in the Middle East, and but we face new threats, not just in the Middle East, but in Eastern Europe and in Asia. And there's a competition for you know U.S. resources and U.S. time and U.S. attention. The U.S. is rightly worried about uh, you know China's uh, China's goals uh, to to dominate the rest of the world and to also extend its brand of government, which is somewhat similar, not the same as Russia, but also involves a lot of corruption uh, and, and, and involves a resentment towards democracy. So we have a competition with China, with Russia, and we have uh, and, we, and we face a world where there are more states that are on the verge of failure. And so those are all challenges for President Biden, for his team. But I think they're doing a great job of meeting those challenges.
Is it hard to meet those challenges though in the midst of the domestic challenges that we face here in the United States, specifically with COVID, the Omicron variant continues to spread. It seems like that is dominating everybody's focus right now. And it, it feels like it's harder to get everybody's attention on challenges like Russia and China and everything else overseas. I think you hit the nail on the head. I mean, we certainly have the capacity and the resources and the talent to focus on foreign policy while we focus on these domestic challenges. But the American people, I think right now, are not focused on foreign policy. They're looking inward, they're looking at the problems we have here, and they don't really have the time and attention to worry about what's happening abroad until there's another crisis. But unless we continue to maintain the situation abroad, there likely will be a crisis which will refocus the American people. David Tafuri, former State Department official, former Obama campaign advisor. David, good of you to join us today, thank you. Thank you. And that'll do it for this conversation on behalf of Asher Cofield, John Skip Villaco, Gina Kim, and the rest of the gang at the Young Turks, I'm David Schuster. Thanks for watching.